Welcome to 3M's Inside Angle podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Wasson, a physician colleague with whom I've worked in the past and have had interesting conversations with over the years. And uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Gordon. I would like to talk with you today about uh, some work that you've titled KISS, Quantophrenia Goodbye. <laughs> and I want you to explain, what do you mean by that title? Well, first of all, let me uh, apologize to any listener who might have heard me talking about organized crime and disorganized healthcare. They'll say, this guy is a real curmudgeon. Uh, I hope this conversation will not sound curmudgeonly, curmudgeon-like, curmudgeon-whatever. Uh, instead, KISS, if you remember back in the day, we used to use that to say, keep it simple, stupid. And this happened a lot when we were working in our Institute of Healthcare Improvement uh, projects to make healthcare meet patients' needs. And we'd constantly say, keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. Unfortunately, healthcare in the last 30 years has gotten a bad, bad, bad case of quantophrenia. And that's what uh, we need to talk about today. So tell me what quantophrenia refers to. Well, first of all, it could be your bumper sticker that people would <laughs> chase you down the street and say, what does that mean? It's a term that was first popularized in a narrow sense in the field of sociology oh, I'd say 50, 60 years ago. And it referred to measurement quantification for its own sake, making quantification the value rather than what are we really trying to do. And if you look at the amount of measurement now in healthcare, both measurement for so-called value-based purchasing or quality of care, or regulation, or measurement for reasons that are totally unclear. It's just out of hand. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot. You know, I, I remember in my own practice that, you know, the measurement around quality was fascinating and fun. But, you know, after I covered a couple of different chronic conditions, it became exhausting. And, I, and I've read a lot of articles around um, physician burnout dissatisfaction with a lot of fingers pointing at how hard it is to document everything that's required for measurement and quality is that that sounds like where you're going with this and if that's true first verify and then tell me what do we do about it well yes that's true and in fact the estimate is that if you look at five highly trained physicians who've spent you know 12 years being trained one out of those five you might as well take off uh, the shelf and put them in a back room and hand them paper because that's how many are being withdrawn out of every five. One doc is being withdrawn nowadays to do paperwork. It is a huge waste not only of doctor's training but a huge waste for society. And so that's what we need to be focusing on. And, and I'm not alone, obviously, in pointing this out. The Institute of Medicine 
and many other prestigious organizations have done the same. The problem I see is built in to the fact that they want to do the changes from the measurers down. In other words, oh golly, why don't you whittle down some of the measures? And the point is, it's such a mess, such a huge collection of quantifrenia that whittling down won't work. It just won't work. Instead, you've got to start asking, what can we do from the bottom up to make it simple? And, and that's the gist of this talk now, is to share some of the work we've been able to do and show its validity. So you're saying that the, the current approach to measurement is so vast and there's so many metrics in there that we can't start with a com start the conversation with saying let's knock some of these off the list it's too big we have to basically wipe the slate clean and start again yeah yeah it, it's unfortunately almost impossible if you think about the politics behind whittling down from thousands and thousands of measures that are out there now. Whittling down is a political process. You're going to have certain organizations say, oh, we've always liked that. You're going to have certain researchers say, but that's my instrument. You get the idea. It's just not going anywhere, and there are groups doing that right now. So we started a number of years ago building from the bottom up, and I think we have a pretty exciting and useful approach now, which I might add could easily be paid for by Medicare, CMS, using current uh, payment mechanisms if they adapted to what we're promoting. So why don't you give me some inf uh, insight into where your research has taken you for measuring important things. Okay, well, where the research is taken us is to simple, simple measures. And I'm going to talk about six of the seven right now. One of the seven I won't talk about is a single measure of poverty. But we know that everything we do in healthcare and in society in general is influenced to a great degree by your financial status. So you've always got to have some measure of that type of determinant. Some people call a whole bunch of those social determinants of health. It's simplest just to say, nah, just keep it simple. It's all about poverty and you can, everything else falls in under that. So I'm going to leave that one off the table and go with six others. Let me start with the first one that was researched by a number of your colleagues in primary care practices. A number of your colleagues years ago said, why are we doing the CAP survey? There are multiple items. Vendors come in, sometimes they nag the patients, but the response rates are miserable. Typically now about one out of every five patients will respond. And when we finally get this report months later, we don't know what to make of it. It says, yeah, your, your quality is good or your quality is not good. And then sometimes somebody will even adjust our payment on it. But we don't know. We don't trust it. So 
what the group did is said, why don't we just see if it makes any difference having one measure versus all this cap stuff. And the study was done, and at the end of the study, it showed that ranking was virtually identical whether you use multiple item caps or a single item asking patients, when you think of your health care, are you receiving exactly the care you want and need, exactly when and how you want and need it? That single item, although it sounds like a mouthful, was actually put forward by a former acting head of CMS or Medicare, Donald Berwick. And that single item does just as well as multiple item caps. And all those multiple item caps, by the time you go through the costing, it's about $40 per completed survey. Whereas asking patients a single item is no cost at all. No, that's interesting. So you're, I, I can just sense the degree of challenge from colleagues of ours as they hear that boiling the complicated CAPS survey down. So CAPS is for the Consumer Assessment of Health Plans, and this is one of the surveys that has to do with how's, what's the experience of your care as a patient in whatever setting. And if we're talking about the outpatient setting, you've studied the relationship of all the different metrics of how hard is it to get an appointment for an urgent visit, how hard is it to get an appointment for a routine visit, uh, waits and delays in the office, all sorts of questions that get into pretty granular detail. You would think with that detail, I as a practice could see how I perform relative to others and use that information to improve things. And so it's valuable and useful information. And yet you're saying that when you studied this, all those questions had such a high relationship to this one that they are really not discerning. And tell me more about that. Well, you summarize it uh, very well. The, The bottom line is if you look at it from a patient's point of view, if you're happy with the practice, you're generally going to be happy with all the things you just described, access, efficiency, uh, communication, etc. If you're not happy, you're going to say all of these things were bad. Now, yeah, you might, in theory, be able to discern if someone spent hours with you. Well, yeah, come to think about it. Maybe, uh, on balance, they were a little more efficient than uh, I gave them credit to. But when you look at the actual data that comes in from patients, and you think about us going through life at this point, we, we generalize. And in fact, corporations everywhere now are putting out kiosks that ask a single question. Uh, how are the bathrooms in the airport? Uh, they don't say, was the toilet a problem? Was the uh, paper out? Was Just how was it? And because they know if you didn't like it, it's they got to look at the bathroom no matter what. So I have, I have a sense now. Okay, I can I can ask a person. I I understand what you're saying around the the global attribution of of I, I like the way they treated me. I didn't like the way they treated me. And as a as a person, an average consumer of healthcare is going to have that broad sense and apply it to a whole set of questions 
glossing over the discernment that we're trying to get at. But what do I do if I want to, if I see that, you know, I take a one question approach and it's less than I hope as a practice now, how do I then get into the level of detail? Why would I want to lose that information? Um, I guess the answer is because it's not discerning at its, at its start. Therefore, it's not real information, so I'm still going to have to do work to see if I'm getting a bad score, yeah. why, and then get into it. Yeah, and, and more importantly, let's back up. That particular measure, just like all of the measures that are sucked out of your medical record about clinical benchmarks, those type of measures, experience of care and clinical benchmarks, are, when you graph them, related but not very strongly related. Benchmarks are related to how patients rate their quality of care and vice versa. Yeah, and and organizations who are paying for care can draw quadrants on that, those data and say, ah, you're good on those and you're not good on those, therefore we'll pay higher. And those of you who are lower paid, you ought to get your act together. Well, that's all well and good, but that's really not what we are about in healthcare. What we're and, and that's where all our money's going. That's sequantifrenia. We're doing all of this measurement and missing the key point. When you ask patients about what matters to them, and that's who we should be serving patients, and we should be serving them in a way that matters to them. When you ask what matters to them, you see across 100 patients a variation going from 20 to 90% of the patients saying, the doctor or nurse is aware of what matters to me. A huge amount of variation. And that's where the real waste is occurring because by not knowing what matters to my patients, I'm going to be applying resources They may be very efficiently applied. Uh, The processes might be perfect, uh, but they're going to have no relationship to the patient's quality of life. And so that's where we decided to focus. We're going to go with one measure for quality, one measure for social determinants, and that's to keep everybody out there who's still doing money measurement happy. And if they want to suck benchmark data out of our records, that's fine. They can do that. But that's not where the action is. The action has to be, let's simplify and standardize the interaction with our patients so that they and we are on the same page and we're avoiding unnecessary hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the real money is. So let's go to the next layer you know, around measuring what matters and you started with seven questions and and we've already talked about uh, the money and we've talked about the sort of the global experience of care metric so are we down to four We're down uh, or to five the, questions yeah the what matters index is five questions and what we did over the last oh decade with hundreds of thousands of patients responses and lots of literature reviews etc and and control trials we found that five items really work exceedingly well at number one, being very good proxies for a patient's quality of life. And that's what we should be about when we're serving patients. 
Let, what can we do to improve their quality of life? And in addition to that, those five questions are very efficient, easy to act on without having to go through any fancy scoring or using computers, etc. The five questions are simply, how confident are you that you can manage and control most of your health problems and concerns? Clearly, a hundred diabetics who say they're not very confident are going to have much lower benchmarks for, for diabetic control than patients who say they are confident. The next question is, how bothersome is the pain? Obviously, there's more wording than I'm using right here on, on the radio, but there, it's a single item about pain, a single item about emotion. Are you on multiple, multiple medicines? Because we know those can be problematic with interactions. And then finally, do you think your medications are making you sick? So those are the five questions. Confidence, pain, emotion, polypharmacy, and are your medicines making you sick? So I want to know about the validity of a person telling me that they have confidence. It, this is a challenge that comes up a lot when I talk to colleagues about this kind of thing, where they say people don't really know, you know, and they're or they're gonna they're gonna blow smoke and they're gonna s- express confidence when they don't actually have competence to be effective at taking care of them of their conditions. Yeah, this comes up that type of statement comes up again and again in almost every arena in which patient voice is listened to. The skeptics will say, well, I had a patient who didn't know their blood sugar. Why should we ask patients how well they're controlling their blood sugar? And the answer is because for 80% of the time it works and it's so much easier to do that than to try and hook into medical records that have blood sugar data from four months ago and use that for today's care. The same with health confidence. Actually, before you go to health confidence, I just want to go back to the blood sugar measurement. So there's a big burden right now in practices when they have to find the hemoglobin A1C value, aggregate that, make sure it meets the inclusion, exclusion criteria, and submit that to national groups that um, you know measure um, quality maybe in the quantifrenia mode. You've studied in the past the relationship between those aggregate hemoglobin A1C values and people's response to how's your blood sugar been when you've given them a range of responses. How strong is the relationship between the aggregate person reported response versus actual lab value of A1C? Exceedingly strong. Uh, in almost everything that we and others have looked at. Obviously, recall for events that have happened a long time ago drops off, uh, depending on the nature of the event. But if you're asking about blood sugar, it's a whole lot more helpful, right? When you're in clinic today with a patient and you say, how's your blood sugar been in the last week or so? That's going to help you decide what to do today. And we do that all the time. Instead of pulling out with months and months of lag some sort of number from the past and using that as though it were the better reality, it's like 
forecasting tomorrow's weather based on a random day weather experience from three months ago. It just is, has very little face validity. So, yes, there will be some patients who respond, depending on how you ask them, in dishonest or not remembering ways. But on balance, uh, it works very well. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I, I think about measurements having uh, different sources of data and import depending on what I'm trying to do. So if I'm thinking about what's the aggregate burden uh, of the A1C or how well am I managing glucose, I have now two pathways. I can measure, I, I can get the data out of the EMR and that could be, take some time and effort. Or I could ask people with diabetes in the practice, and those are equally efficacious ways of getting to the answer. And if I'm going to ask that question as part of a, a health risk assessment, for instance, it may obviate the need of the technical lab interface response and therefore reduce the burden on practice, which is part of reducing the quantifrenia approach. So that I, I'm attracted to that. But you know, let, let's get back now to the other aspects of the questions that matter for people. You mentioned that uh, there's what's your capacity to be effective at managing uh, the self-confidence question. You talked about pain, emotions, how many meds, and are your meds making you sick? The what, What's interesting to me is that it sounds like each and any one of those questions is, is kind of like a, a quick assessment, which then tells me, do I need to go further? Is, uh, and, and then I can take action, which to me is the level of work that is important at the human interface that the, when I'm working with a patient, this is where now I have work to do. I need to get going. But those questions are the start of the work. I can, I can, I have a binary at that top level to say I have work to do or I don't have work to do. Is that, is that how you think of using this? Yeah. So the what matters index in practice can be used and should be used in several ways. First, it's totally geared to getting clinicians and patients on the same page. In other words, Gordon and John are both going to get the same standard questions answered by their patients. And so the unwanted variation between John and Gordon in terms of actions taken is going to be uh, minimize the variation is going to be minimized because we're all using the same standard questions. Secondly, as you implied, those questions are so clear in intent for action that you can begin to standardize the actions as well. And in fact, using howsyourhealth.org as an example of information and communication technology. For a patient who has no uh, what matters index problems, you can pat them on the head and say, you're doing great. And it turns out that if you look at diabetics, for example, who have a WMI of zero, only 4% will have a blood sugar out of control, 4%. So on balance, don't lose sleep over it, and certainly don't go pulling medical records trying to pull up blood sugars on patients with low WMIs. 
they're all going to be fine, uh, or almost all, and just leave it alone. Now, if they have one WMI question, most often it'll be the confidence question, but it could be any of the others. There, about 8% of the patients have an abnormal or out of control glucose levels, blood sugar levels in the past, in the recent past. And there you'd say, well, I want to pay a little attention to that one item that the patients answered. And hopefully by knowing that item, I'll indirectly get the sugar, but most importantly, I'll be dealing with what matters to the patient. So the patient may have be lacking confidence, and I'd be asking, what would it take to make you more confident? Well, I need uh, to do X, Y, or Z. You get the idea. Once you get up to two or more on the WMI, or what matters index, then the percent of patients with abnormal blood sugars is about 20%. So one out of every five are going to be out of control with their diabetes. And in addition to that, their quality of life, as you'd expect, is going to be a lot less. And they're going to need a lot more time from you. And most importantly, we documented in both Medicaid and private practice patients that those with a WMI greater than or equal to two have at least a twofold increase odds of being hospitalized or placed in the emergency room in the next year. So these folks are going to need much more attention. And that's a very rational way to stratify care, know exactly what the issues are, and begin to address them and hopefully increase quality of life. So that that's very interesting to me in the sense of I have sort of two things that I want to think about as a clinician in practice or as a medical director over a group of practices. One is I want to work with individuals and help them uh, work on what's important to them in terms of quality of life and healthcare and the stuff that I'm doing. And so I'm going to use a screening tool to find out what's important to them and where things are going wrong. And I'm also going to, you know, go beyond that and say, here's preventive stuff you ought to be doing. And I'll probably still measure their blood sugar if they have diabetes and measure their weight or, or blood pressure if they have hypertension. But as a, the second piece of work is thinking who's out there in, in my practice group who may be lost a follow-up not coming in or uh, you know I've touched them but not in the last six months or so and this is a way to say these individuals are at greater risk so if I have limited resource and time maybe I should focus on those who are at greatest risk of things going bad for them and that the index can help me with that I may start just with the most extreme people with the greatest number of questions going in the wrong direction that's, have you seen that work uh, in practices? Have they, have they used that kind of strategy? Well, what we have designed, and again, the practices often help do the design, and you're articulating exactly the type of thing they want, which is, I don't care about the patients who are coming in the office as being difficult to reach, and I can give them ask them to complete the WMI before they come to the office. 
but what about those others out there I haven't seen? And again, the WMI is so short, it is easily used on the uh, smartphone or on paper, etc. So it's very easy to reach out. As a matter of fact, you could put it in uh, Ladies Home Journal and get it across uh, everyone who reads that magazine or Wall Street Journal. So the WMI offers a lot of potential in terms of its ease of administration, and since it doesn't cost anything, that's even better. One one last point is at howsyourhealth.org, we have now the WMI available, so you can immediately use it as your screener for patients who want to use a smartphone or before the office visit, complete it on the computer. And you can customize it. You can get it mailed to your practice so that you can add additional questions uh, to the WMI as well. In other words, it has all the functionality of the full How's Your Health assessment that you would routinely want to give to patients who have a WMI 2 or higher. And in fact, the automated WMI does a lot of that work for you. So we've got the uh, an approach to a person coming into a practice or to whom I want to reach out using the, the tools that assess at the high level five to seven questions and then at the more detailed level with your howsyourhealth.org. Now I want to get I want to loop it back into the quantifrenia discussion. What we've been talking about is how to keep it simple, measuring what's mat what matters. But if I'm standing back now as a policymaker or I'm working in a health plan or I'm an employer focusing, you know, telling the employees to do this or that or choosing a different plan to work with, how how can I have confidence that that the what matters index or something like that is telling me that the quality of care delivered by those practices is adequate. Is would you go there? Is is it possible to use a tool for that? And if so, why is it valid compared to some of the other things that are out there? Well, I think that is where we are right now today. We have on the one hand incredibly expensive, wasteful approaches. I alluded to or mentioned the CAP survey, one in five response rates. Uh, it's just silly, and it's very costly, 40 bucks a completion. Somebody's paying for that, and it's driving clinicians out of practice. We are sucking ancient benchmark data out of medical records and using that to pay clinicians uh, along with the CAP survey and assuming somehow that Gordon Moore, in his wisdom, is going to be able to take some sort of scores from that and figure out how to make healthcare better when he's not on the same page with his patients in terms of what matters to them and he's getting no feedback on that. So the current system's a mess. It's expensive, and it doesn't serve what matters to patients, and therefore it's not quality of life enhancing for patients. The status quo, and in particular the latest stratification using uh, so-called predictive analytics, uh, is very, very expensive. So back to your uh, head of an ACO, or an insurance company, or a group practice, they need to just do a head-to-head comparison on 
No, I don't care. A hundred patients, six practices, etc., and compare something that has no cost. The WMI is free online, or they can print it out themselves or put it in their own EMR template. It's free. It serves quality of life. And compare all the costs of using a WMI-based approach versus the status quo. Count the dollars. Count the hospitalizations. uh, Count the waste of time and see which wins. It's unlikely, given the zero cost of what I've just described, that uh, it's going to lose. Well, John, I that is a challenge that I am hoping that our listeners are up to testing, and uh, and they can follow the threads that we'll link at the at the bottom of the podcast, so that they know where to go to pick that challenge up and actually give it a try, and give it a head-to-head comparison. You know, we didn't get into details on the difference between measuring uh, primary care on the basis of a handful of condition-specific metrics versus global. Uh, that's been sort of implicit. And there are other podcasts where I've had the uh, opportunity to speak with folks like uh, Bob Berenson um, and Harold Miller who address that kind of thing. And so we'll provide links to those as well. So I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks, Gordon. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.